I'm speaking of those passages where it's plain we're reading something directly linked to God saving His people from their sin. Something directly linked to God's redemptive purposes. Uh, the Bible has one overarching story. God's plan to rescue sinners from the just penalty of our sin and rebellion against Him through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's, you can call that the meta-narrative, the, the one big story from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. And there are all sorts of little stories under that, that big umbrella of that one big story. And within those little stories, you come across what you might want to call hinges. Um, hinges upon which the storyline of the Bible turns, like a door. For example, the fall of humanity in Genesis chapter 3, and God's promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, the devil, in verse 15. We looked at that text last week. Uh, that's a massive turning point in the Bible's plot line. And it's a launching pad to what God is going to accomplish, His salvation purposes, for the future and into all of eternity. It's only three chapters in, but the rest of the Bible must, must be read in light of that verse, Genesis 3.15. And that holds true with God's covenantal promises to the patriarch Abraham, uh, the exodus from Egypt, God entering into covenant with the nation of Israel and Mount Sinai, and then that nation's entry into the promised land, God's promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that he would have a royal descendant who would rule forever, the Babylonian exile, and the return of the exiles to Israel. Uh, all those events, you can think of them as being like sinews or ligaments or tendons, holding the story of the Bible together. Likewise, in our sermon text today, Luke chapter 1, we see a dramatic shift from what's come before. Or to be biblically precise, we see the fulfillment of events Yahweh, God, had promised Israel in the Old Testament. In Luke chapter 1, at last, after 430 years of silence from God, a new era has begun. Six months previous, God sent the angel Gabriel, a being who, we learn in verse 19, stands in God's very presence. God sends Gabriel to a Levite priest named Zechariah to tell him about the birth of his son, John the Baptist. John's role will be to get the nation of Israel ready for what God is about to do in the Messiah, the son of David. John the Baptist will call out of Israel a prepared and responding group of people who are ready to follow the Lord's way of salvation through his Christ. John will serve as Jesus' personal prophet. You know, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, his personal prophet. In Gabriel's second visitation, he appears to a young virgin named Mary. Mary is a relative of John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth. And what Gabriel announces to Mary is the hinge upon which the whole Bible turns. God becomes a human being. Mary's own son, virginally conceived. 
You see, our passage today is about two things, really. Two things God wants us to apply to our own lives, our own circumstances, for our good and for His glory. The first is this. This text is about the faithfulness of God in bringing about the salvation and deliverance He promised to His people long ago. God wants His new covenant people, His church, to know how that is. He wants us to understand the historical and the prophetic particulars. He wants us to be able to trace this out, even back to previous Old Testament covenants. This text is about the faithfulness of God in bringing about the salvation deliverance He promised to His people long ago. How did God actually intervene in human history that He might reestablish His Lordship over this created world and rebellion against Him? How did that happen? How did God deliver on His promise to bring salvation to His people? Forgiving sin, reconciling us to Himself, and filling us with His Spirit. Beloved, part of the answer lies in the virginal conception of Jesus. The long-promised Savior King of Israel, the Son of God. So that's the first thing. Secondly, this story is about Mary's reaction, her response to the news that God would fulfill His salvation deliverance through her virginally conceived Son. Mary, Mary responds to Gabriel's message with submission and obedience. She obediently submits to the will of God. That needs to be pointed out because what God calls Mary to in this passage is not all wine and roses. As Simeon would later prophesy to Mary by the Spirit, a sword will pierce through your own soul on account of this child. In the virginal conception of Jesus, God calls Mary to something hard, very hard. This 14, 15-year-old girl in order for God's salvation deliverance for the world to be accomplished, God must ruin her sexual reputation. And yet, Mary responds with obedient submission. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Christian, could you say that? Do with me as you please, Lord. I understand. Do you trust God enough, Christian, to say, take me, use your omnipotent power, Lord, and put me where you want me to be, when you want me to be there, doing what you've called me to do? We can learn a lot from Mary. So, with those two things in mind, the faithfulness of God in bringing about the salvation and deliverance that He promised to His people long before, and Mary's obedient submission to the will of God. Let's start with verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So, Mary lives 
in Nazareth. That's an inconsequential village in the region of Galilee, way up north in the sticks. Mary is betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now, uh, I've only seen the 1961 movie Breakfast at Tiffany's once in my life about 30 years ago. Anyone else seen that movie? One? My wife is the only one. Wow. Okay, the three people. I've only actually seen the movie once. Um, I don't think it's a very fun movie. Uh, it's quite sad, really. Um, but there's a line that's always stuck in my head. A very unattractive man comes to a party that the gorgeous Audrey Hepburn is hosting in her New York apartment. Uh, but Audrey really perks up when this guy comes through the door. And she tells her neighbor in that, in that accent that she has, right? but that's Rusty Trawler, the ninth richest man in America, under 50. And her neighbor responds, now that indeed is a remarkable piece of information to have in your <laughs> Now I suppose it's not very holy, but I always think of that scene when I read this text. Verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, the town of Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. That, indeed, is a remarkable piece of information. It's of tremendous importance. It's why Luke goes to such pains to prove Joseph's lineage with the genealogy at the end of chapter 3. And that's a, that's a text of scripture we probably skim through, if not just skip altogether. He goes to great pains to put that lineage in there. Look at chapter 3, verse 23. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. I love that. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. The son of Heli, the son of Nathat, the son of Levi, the son of Malki, so on and so on, back to David, then Abraham, and finally, Adam. Now, the fact that Joseph is a direct descendant of King David, that probably made for some very interesting conversation at dinner parties, and, and uh, it, it had absolutely nothing, though, to do with any aspect of Joseph's daily life. Nothing. Um, the ninth richest man in Israel under 50, he is not. Uh, nor had there been a king in Israel, or a kingdom for that matter, for 600 years. It would be like one of us being directly related to King Henry VI of the House of Lancaster, who sat on the English throne in 1422, 600 years ago. Don't be expecting any favors, right? <laughs> we couldn't care less. It's too far in the past. At all the same time, legally, since Mary, at the time of her betrothal, is considered to be Joseph's wife, any child born to Mary would be regarded as Joseph's if he accepted care for the child. Uh, the plot thickens, right? And Luke uses two simple descriptions for Mary. First, she's a virgin. She's chaste. His second description is that she's pledged to be married. Now, when I proposed to Jill, I followed the general Canadian custom. First, I asked her father for permission. He gave his blessing. Uh, then he, I bought a ring. And then I waited for the right romantic moment. And then I popped the question. And from the moment that Jill said yes, and I slipped the ring on her finger, Jill was no longer my girlfriend, uh, but neither was she my wife. She was my fiancé. 
whatever that means. And I say it like that because we live in a culture and a time in Canada where fiancés can call the whole thing off and there's not too much hassle. That, there's the awkward question of the ring, obviously. I mean, whose property is that if things go south? Show of hands, maybe. <laughs> uh, but it's certainly not a legal hassle to break off an engagement in Canada. But that was not the case in first century Jewish culture. When Gabriel makes his visit to Mary and Joseph, <clears throat> they are in the initial stage of a two-stage marriage process. The first stage of engagement or betrothal involves a formal witness agreement to follow through in marriage and the financial exchange of a bride price, which means the two families are involved arranging the marriage, money has been exchanged, documents have been signed, legal contracts entered into, there's been legal witnesses, it's a big, big deal. So much so that in the Jewish patrol state, the woman legally belongs to the groom and she's referred to as his wife. They're just not living together. And they're certainly not having sex. That would be considered fornication. It's one year later that the marriage ceremony itself takes place. Then the husband takes his wife into his home and the marriage is consummated. But to break off a betrothal in this culture, one actually needs a writ of divorce. Which is why in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 1, verse 19, when Joseph finds out Mary is pregnant, he plans to divorce her. It's certainly not his kid. His wife has been unfaithful. What else is he to think? What's everybody in the village of Nazareth supposed to think? Verse 28. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. And I believe what Gabriel is doing in this greeting is looking ahead. Mary's reputation is about to become mud. And even worse, in this culture, she's about to bring great shame upon her family. Gabriel is saying, Mary, you are a recipient of God's favor. The Lord is with you. Be encouraged. God will be with you throughout all the events I'm about to reveal. But it won't be for another 33 years or so that you'll see or truly understand why all of this is necessary. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be called Great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. 
The angel Gabriel says five things to Mary about Mary's child. They're listed in your bulletin for you. Number one, his name will be Jesus. In Hebrew, Jesus means Yahweh saves. Beloved, could our Savior have a more appropriate name? Yahweh saves. Matthew 1.20 An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So, his name will be Jesus. Yahweh saves. Number two, Gabriel says to Mary in verse 32, he will be great. Christian, do you ever feel weird praying in public? In, in a restaurant, perhaps? You know, is that, is that a time where the whole, ta- the whole table, all five of you, maybe, just kind of, you lean over, just, everyone starts rubbing their eyebrows. The waiter looks over and says, there's five people rubbing their eyebrows. Then it's done. <laughs> or do you ever feel embarrassed? Uh, do you feel ashamed to tell your colleagues at work or your family that you can't do this or that thing or that you believe this or that thing because of Jesus? John Piper writes, A Christian who feels ashamed of Jesus Christ is like a candle feeling ashamed of the sun. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created, and He is supreme over all creation. Through Him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things that we can see, and the things that we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through Him and for Him. He existed before anything else. He holds all creation together. Jesus is also the head of the church, which is His body. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. He is first in everything. Words fail to fill the greatness of Jesus. So, Gabriel leaves it simple and yet so profound. He will be great. Number three, he will be called the Son of the Most High. Verse 32. In the Old Testament, the Davidic king who prefigures the office of the Messiah is called God's Son. Think of Psalm 2.12. Kiss the son, or he will be angry. Kiss the Davidic king, the king on the throne, the human king in Jerusalem. Kiss him, or he will be angry. Gabriel says that Jesus is the Davidic king of 2 Samuel chapter 7. But it goes beyond that. Gabriel means more than that. Jesus is uniquely God's son. He is the divine word and image of God, begotten from all eternity. Christians shouldn't hesitate for a second to import full-blown, robust Trinitarianism into this verse. Jesus is the eternal, divine Son of God, co-equal with God the Father, as the phrase is used in John 5, 22-23, for example. I'm just going to read this text. John 5, 22. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Or think of 
Hebrews 1, 2. In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. He will be called the Son of the Most High. Number four, the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. That means Jesus will fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies that the son of David will rule over Israel, that an eternal Davidic ruler will come into the world. And, and just look at how much Luke makes of Jesus' Davidic descent in this section. The house of David is mentioned in chapter 169 in Zechariah's song. God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Luke mentions the city of David and his house in chapter 2, verse 4. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. 2.11, the angels to the shepherds. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And then we have Joseph's genealogy at the end of chapter 3, which goes through King David in verse 31. So, if we were to ask Luke the Evangelist, who is Jesus? His basic starting point would be this regal Davidic connection. That's how Luke begins his theological biography of Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the fundamental Jewish hopes for a kingly ruler and redeemer. Jesus is the promised Davidic king, the son of the Most High, the son of God. And, number five, his kingdom will never end. Verse 33, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Jesus is the king who is himself eternal. Jesus is the king over whom death has no power so that he can reign eternally. Gabriel says these five things about Mary, uh, about Jesus to Mary. Verse 34, how would this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. Now, you kind of compare that with how Zechariah responded, and he gets like blighted with, you know, he can't speak. You know, it sounds like Mary says the same thing. She doesn't, though. She doesn't doubt Gabriel's announcement, but she's honestly mystified as to how this can be, how this can occur. She's a virgin. Sure, she might live, live in the boonies up in the north, right? But uh, you know, she knows basic biology. So, so Gabriel tells her, the Holy Spirit will perform this great miracle. Mary will become pregnant without having sexual relations with a man. Verse 35, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, what we're reading of here, Gabriel is proclaiming direct divine involvement in the coming Davidic ruler's conception. Direct divine involvement. The power of the Most High God will overshadow Mary. And God's Spirit will act with creative power the Creator God, who brought life out of nothing, who spoke the universe into existence, and created human beings from dust, is going to create life in the womb of a virgin. How that happens, precisely, we have no idea. 
What we do know is this. The power of the Lord manifests in the Holy Spirit, who is himself God, miraculously brought about the conception of Jesus. This is one of the deep, deep mysteries of the faith. And Gabriel tells Mary that the child produced by this divine conception will be holy. He will be the Son of God. Again, what Mary understands Gabriel to be saying is that Jesus will be the promised Davidic king. He will be the Messiah, the Son of God. That's what Jews call the Messiah. But this side of the New Testament, Christians read Luke 135 with so much more understanding. It would be appropriate to take all the ways the Bible refers to Jesus as the Son of God, or God's Son, and bring it to bear on this verse. Jesus is the Davidic King. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the eternal, divine Son. It's all there. But here's the question. Why is the virginal conception of Jesus so important? Friends, why is this one of the uh, non-negotiables of the Christian faith? Uh, Christians can disagree on baptism, on gifts of the Spirit, church government, eschatology, but not this. This is a first-level issue. If you don't believe in the virginal conception of Jesus, you're not a Christian. Do you know why? Because Mary's virginal conception is the means whereby God becomes a man. Mary's virginal conception is the means whereby God becomes a man. In recording for us the virginal conception of our, of our Lord, Luke intends for us to understand before anything else that by this means the pre-existent Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The virgin conception is the Bible's answer to the question which naturally, naturally arises when we tell someone that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Fully man. They're going to ask, how did this occur? And we answer, by means of Mary's virginal conception. By means of Mary's virginal conception, God the Son, without ceasing to be who He is, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the eternal Son and Word of God, took into union with His divine nature, in the one divine person of the Son, our human nature. And so came to be God with us. Belong, prophesied, and manual, to use the language of Matthew's Gospel. Any other suggested purpose for the virgin conception of Jesus, whatever truth it may contain, pales in significance next to the glorious light of this very clear reason for it. And of course, what we read here of the Incarnation must be understood in light of the book's climax the cross. As John Piper notes, the incarnation is the preparation of nerve endings for the nails. The incarnation is the preparation of brow for thorns to press through. He needed to have a broad back so that there was a place for the whip. He needed to have feet 
so there was a place for spikes. He needed to have a side so there was a place for the spear to go in. He needed cheeks, fleshy cheeks, so that Judas would have a place to kiss. And there would be a place for the spit to run down that the soldiers put on him. He needed a brain and a spinal column so that the exquisiteness of the pain could be fully felt for you. And so, Jesus, as a result of God's creative power, comes to this fallen creation as the Holy Son of God. And the fact that Mary's long barren cousin Elizabeth has already conceived a child in her old age by supernatural means acts as confirmation to Mary. Nothing, nothing is impossible with God. Verse 36. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. Gabriel is affirming to Mary God's power to accomplish whatever he says. God has power to accomplish even these miraculous births. John the Baptist, Jesus Christ. As one commentator notes, the laws of nature are not chains which the divine legislator has laid upon himself. They are threads, mere threads, which he holds in his hands and which he shortens and lengthens at will. And so after being told of all this miraculous news, Mary responds to Gabriel's message with submission and obedience. Verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. Mary answered, May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. You see what Mary's done? Mary identifies herself as a servant, a bond slave of the Lord. And as God's handmaid, Mary accepts what God asks of her. It may very well be that the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and the power of the Most High overshadowed her, and her son was called Great, and the Son of the Most High, and all the rest of it. But in the eyes of her family and townspeople, Mary is pregnant with an illegitimate child. She's a fornicator. And I'm sure her neighbors, perhaps even her own relatives, had some pretty nasty names for Mary. This promiscuous young woman was brought such shame down upon her family. And what can Mary possibly say? <coughs> oh, no, no, no. You don't understand. It's God who did this. I'm still a virgin. This is all in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. I'm pregnant with the Messiah. An angel told me so. Yeah, right. How are mom and dad going to react to that? Even so, Mary accepts her astonishing role with submissive composure, with submissive obedience. Mary is exemplary in the way that she responds to God's message to her. She basically says, God, you can do with me as you see fit. I willingly give up my rights. I willingly give up my reputation. And perhaps... As Protestants, this is something we need to see afresh. The Virgin Mary, in this instance, serves as a model of faith. Sometimes, 
bad theology breeds reactionary bad theology. Uh, there's, there's bad teaching on this side of the spectrum, so the church swings the pendulum all the way to the other side and comes up with some fresh nonsense. It happens all the time. Roman Catholicism has gradually added more titles and myths to Mary. Catholics have added titles such as Mother of God and Queen of Heaven to Mary, neither of which is found in the Bible. Rome teaches, contrary to the scriptures, that Mary, Mary was immaculately conceived. The immaculate conception has nothing to do with Jesus. It's Mary's conception is immaculate. She was therefore born sinless. Mary was free from original sin, Rome teaches, and free of her own personal sin throughout all her life. And it became official Roman Catholic dogma as recently as 1950 that Mary, like Enoch, was transported to heaven bodily, thereby escaping death. <laughs> Jill and I went to Krakow, Poland, a number of years ago, where we visited the oldest Roman Catholic church in Eastern Europe. It's called the Church of Our Lady Assumed into Heaven, also known as St. Mary's Church. It is a beautiful, stunning building. Its foundations date back to the early 13th century, can you imagine? Uh, and it's particularly famous for its wooden altarpiece, the largest Gothic altarpiece in the world, and it's a, it's a Polish national treasure. At the very top of the altarpiece, there's a statue of Jesus himself crowning Mary, the Queen of Heaven. Now, I'm, I'm not denying, that's terrible, that's blasphemous. But Protestants have sometimes reacted to all this, by remaining silent about Mary's astonishing character. Many Protestants have downplayed Mary, which is a shame. She has much to teach us. We've already seen that this text is about the faithfulness of God in bringing about the salvation deliverance He promised to His people long ago. And Mary herself recognizes what's happening to her as being in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Look at in her song in verse 56. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. But this story is also about Mary's reaction. It's about her response to the news that God would fulfill his promise of salvation and deliverance through her virginally conceived son. Mary responds to Gabriel's message with submission and obedience. She obediently submits the will of God for her life. When Mary responds to Gabriel, verse 38, I am the Lord's servant, or better, slave. May your word to me be fulfilled. She surrenders herself absolutely to God's will. A slave is someone who has... A slave is someone whose person and service belongs wholly to another. Mary's person and service belong wholly to God. That's how she thinks of herself. Her life is not her own to live. So despite her perplexity, she chooses to comply with grace. May your word to me be fulfilled. Let God's will be done, in other words. Not my will, your will be done. 
Beloved, Mary's greatest desire is for God's word, what he has decreed, both in the past and the present, to become a reality in her life. That's her greatest desire. She's willing to trust God and therefore to dedicate herself wholeheartedly and unreservedly to him, come what may. In essence, not my will, yours will be done. I'm going to close with this. Brother, sister, what has God sovereignly called you to in life? How is your Heavenly Father telling you, bloom where I've sovereignly planted you? Keep that thorn in your flesh. I'll supply daily grace. Continue to be my faithful servant. Because there are no accidents. Romans 8.28 In all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. God works. He is at work in each of our lives. And God is at work for the good of His people. And by good, that means, in that Romans 8 context, verse 29, what He deems best to assist our growth into the image of Christ and to bring us to final glory, verse 30. Those good things that in this life that contribute to that final salvation, that sustain us on that path to that final salvation. God works for our good in all things. Not 95% of things. All things, which includes your rotten job, your difficult marriage, your poor health, your unemployment, past sins that have left their impact, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. In my singleness, in my poor finances, in my ruined reputation for Jesus' sake, in my children who have gone off the rails, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Loving my local church, where I must sacrificially commit to serve Brothers and sisters who are difficult, death to self, service on a foreign mission field, frustrated ministry expectations. Not my will, your will be done. Christian, can you say that? Do you trust God enough to say, take me, use your omnipotent power, put me where you want me to be, when you want me to be there, doing what you want me to do. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. You see, we can learn a lot from Mary this morning. May God give us grace to do so. Amen. Mm -hmm.